It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. The collapse on the football field of 24-year-old Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin was shocking, really, to say the least. A young man more physically fit than the majority of the population suddenly drops to the ground uh, from cardiac arrest. Now, the good news is today that uh, Hamlin has been discharged from the hospital. He went through a series of cardiac, neurological, and vascular testing this week, and doctors say, you know, they're confident he can safely be discharged and continue um, the rehab at home and, uh, and with the bulls. But that's only part of the story. The rest of the story is the outpouring of prayer. That began immediately when millions witnessed Damar's body go limp on that field. You know, players, sports announcers, fans in the stands all began to pray. Now, Jim Daly, president of Focus on the Family, wrote about that powerful prayer moment for Fox Digital. Um, But he also brought out the larger story of Damar's faith and his background. Uh, Jim Daly is also the author of The Good Dad, Becoming the Father You Were Meant to Be, and he joins me now. Welcome. Welcome, Jim. Lauren, it's good to be with you. Thank you. It is great to be here. And, you know, why do you think p- people just immediately started to pray in that moment? I mean, we're, we're in a secular world, mm. in a secular culture that has taken prayer out of schools, out of civic meetings and all sorts of things. But at that moment, people just started to pray. I think, you know, you saw it on TV. I was watching Monday Night Football and I saw the players kneel and then more of them knelt. And then you began to hear the commentators talking about praying. And it it was just that moment. And I think one of the things, Lauren, even if you go back to 9-11, that was a massive catastrophe. But it is interesting whether it's one person or 3000 people when catastrophic events occur. It is interesting, even though we are becoming more and more a secular nation, how when our backs are up against the wall or we feel emotional towards somebody whose back is up against the wall, it's like we need to pray. And there's something I think just wired in us. I'm a person of faith, so I believe it's God's wiring in us that says, pray to me. And uh, it was just really refreshing to see people respond that way, especially even commentators like on ESPN for, you know, I think it was Dan Orlowski to say, okay, we're talking about praying for him. I think we need to just pray for him. And then he did it. (laughs) And it was a beautiful prayer, like you were talking to your father. And that's what he did. And it was so wonderful to see. There is that element, and maybe that's part of it, that there's a loss of control. Um, with all of the technology we have, with all of huh. the medical advances, in that moment, that 24-year-old just dropped. And yeah. this lack of understanding what happened, but knowing that something very, 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 very serious had happened. Um, d- d- is that what prayer, is that sometimes how we are motivated to pray, is that we just have no other option? Well, it's an interesting dynamic, and I don't know that we know all the dimensions of prayer, but when, you know, Jesus himself said, pray to your Father in heaven, there is a a lot of different 
dynamics going on there. One, it's soothing our own heart that we're able to grieve or to express grief or concern or fear or whatever it might be. And then in return, peace. I mean, that's what the scripture talks about. Shalom, God's peace uh, coming upon us. And I think, you know, for those people that don't understand it or maybe even ridicule it, they don't uh, look deeply enough to see what the benefits of prayer actually brings. And I think it is that it kind of soothes those fears that we have and also gives us gives us a sense of confidence and a sense of peace about the environment we're in. And I think, you know, with DeMar's situation, the thing that's shocking, like you said, you have a strong 24 year old man at the prime of his physical ability, even, you know, everything else, 24, that's when you're yeah. top of your game for a guy. Right. And, you know, for him to just drop over and, it, you know, the tackle was kind of uh, ordinary. Right. And and so for me, it was just like, wow, that just brings our own mortality to the forefront. Like if this dude falls down yeah. in that situation, we could be in that situation at any moment. And I think that it, it just reminds us that life is fragile. You know, you also brought out in the article, which I think is very important, is that here, Damar Hamlin, he has this incredible platform and he has a background um like many families where it's not all, you know, you know, a bed of roses and gardens and white picket fences. And but through it all, they struggle, but they came out really very, very strong. And he has yeah. that platform because of football. Yeah. You know, I I was really intrigued and even more impressed about this young man, given his mom and dad, a teen pregnancy. And that's how DeMar was brought into this world. And then his dad goes to prison for selling drugs, but he stays committed to the family. I'm like, wow, this this has it all. This is about commitment. This is about faith. This is about even DeMar in his own words saying, you know, my dad taught me no matter what it takes, we do everything we can for one another in the family. That's what we're talking about every day at Focus on the Family. So even with those things that pull us down and the environments that we're in, if we're coming, I, I lived in Compton, California in third mm. and fourth grade. I come from a very poor white family. But th just that whole context of coming from the inner city or the bad side of town and then rising up, I, I love what DeMar was expressing there, that what he learned from his dad, even though his dad was not a perfect person. And guess what? None of us are perfect people. But I love the commitment that DeMar's father and mother had for each other, for their family. DeMar, how he learned that and what how he put that into play to work hard to become an NFL football player. That is difficult to do. And, uh, and then how he expresses it back to his community. Just such a great role model. All of it. You know, it's funny um, that we all think in terms of purpose and when you see this 24-year-old dropping to the ground. He has a cardi in, in cardiac arrest. And you wonder what could God's purpose be in allowing that to happen? Have you ever thought Fuck. about that larger story? Because a lot of people are like, why would God allow this tragedy? And you and I both know uh, it's hard to understand why God would allow anything, um, but there's always a purpose in it. Absolutely. And the difficulty is it's the deep end of the pool when we start talking about these things, because we can't always figure it out. I think the human appetite is to say A plus B equals C. You know, mm -hmm. it's some kind of logic flow that we're expecting, even in our spiritual journey. And it's not always there. We don't understand these things. The one thing I know is from being an orphan kid, my mom died when I was nine, my mm -hmm. dad when I was 11, I lived in foster care. So I, I went through that route in life. And the one thing that I realized is suffering has a place 
and it makes you stronger in so many ways if you tip toward that direction. In other words, you don't allow bitterness to build up and resentment and anger. But if you can learn from it and become a better person, which clearly DeMar has done um, from his childhood, that those are the elements that really make you stronger and give you that resiliency that so many child development experts talk about, like the core thing a child needs is resiliency. And that to me, when we're trying to erase as a culture, all the pain in life, we're mm. going to take away everything and give you a puppy and we're going to give you an award for doing nothing. And all this kind of uh, psycho babble that we end up doing actually does more harm for us. I think children and in adulthood um, those of us that do suffer from certain setbacks can learn a lot from it. And it's where your character is developed. That's who you know who you are. When the chips are down, that's who you are. How did you know at age 11 to keep going? I mean, that's got to be difficult because it's one thing for a 24-year-old to kind of say, I'm going to, you know, try to figure out what this life is about. But an 11-year-old is so vulnerable. I mean, they're still at that age supposed to being raised by their parents and you're without yeah. your parents. Well, and like so many families today, it was an irony when Dr. Dobson asked me uh, to lead focus after him. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm from a hyper dysfunctional background. And, you know, but the, the thing about it, though, Lauren, I think um, at an early age and I think being a person of faith, you understand this. I think God just protected me. He gave me the insight to say, I don't own my alcoholic father's behavior. Mm. I knew that when I was a little boy. I just thought I felt bad for my dad. I felt sorry for my dad. I didn't own his behavior. I didn't think he did those things because of me. And and even as a boy, I thought when I grow up, I don't want to be like that. Not in a nasty way, but in a way that it was very uh, educational to mm -hmm. me. I, I, I took the cues and I said, I don't want to be an alcoholic father. I didn't really enjoy being the son of an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm not going to do that to my children. And thank the Lord that was able to happen. <laughs> and uh, But I think DeMar also watching his dad. I mean, I appreciate his dad's honesty about being a drug dealer and going to jail and the pain that it caused his family. But obvious, obviously, DeMar he took that in and learned from it. How do I be a better man because of the mistakes my dad made? Boy, that is healthy. And I, I just would hope mm. more of us raising kids and and uh, developing our family uh, journey would just, you know, look for those opportunities to teach our kids how to be better people. Well, you know, the one thing that DeMar's father did that is most important is that he stayed. Yes. That he was there. You know, I mean, I think imperfect as you could be, one of mm -hmm. the most important things for a parent to be is just there. You know? It sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. When you look at the statistics on fatherless homes, 90% of runaways run away from fatherless homes. 76% of drug addict teenagers come from fatherless homes. And I think when you look at us as a culture in the U.S. particularly, we have done so much to harm the structure of the family and to push dads out of any kind of role. Mm -hmm. What do they really bring to the party? Well, now researchers, social scientists are saying, wow, they actually bring quite a bit of stability of the rules and the enforcement of that. And, you know, there's a good aspect to all that, that dads bring a certain concreteness. Mom's love is 
is rock solid. You're yeah. never going to yeah. guess mom may not love me, but how many people say, does dad really love me? Yeah. And you think about it, there, there's where so much ambiguity exists. And I think for DeMar, even though his dad was struggling in so many areas, the fact that he stuck together and spoke about the importance of family and that we stick together as a family, man, that communicated to young DeMar. And that meant something to him. It taught him something. And I, you know, and again, when you look outside the stadiums, as I wrote in that piece, and you look at the broken families and the boys and girls that are being brought up where dad did cut out, he didn't stick with it. He communicates in that context, that father communicates a lot to that daughter that you really don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And that you're not there for them. And man, those are holes that women and men end up spending a lifetime trying to fill. You know, there's a there's a sort of a pushback or at least a a movement uh, anger, I guess, at the thought that, you know, culture, secular culture is really trying to redefine the family. Now, you are the head of the focus on the family. How do you what is a family if you could have the, the, yeah. the definitive version of what is a family? Yeah, when you look at it, the, the one thing that I always struggle with is somehow that Western culture was the formation of the nuclear family. Boy, it's just not true. Look in the scripture itself. I mean, that's 5,000 years old in some cases with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But Jesus himself said, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So when you when you're discerning what does that mean it basically means the man kind of moves out of mom and dad's house sets up his own house gets married and starts a family of his own Mm. the western culture was not the inventor of the nuclear family it comes right out of ancient mediterranean life in israel if you want to look back that far and you can go further back to greece and other places where the family is defined so First, we got to push back on this idea that somehow it's a racist notion or Mm -hmm. the nuclear family is not the way it needs to be. I think fundamentally, there's only one way a child's coming into this world, and that is a man and a woman. Guess what? They (laughs) have a sexual relationship, and there's a child made out of that sexual relationship. Now, we're just saying that we believe, along with all of the social science we read, that families do best... Uh, when they are intact, loving mom and dad uh, with those children. And again, Lauren, you know this, all the social science that supports the good outcomes. And this is what, for me, working at Focus on the Family and trying to talk to even politicians about the environment that's required, I am shocked that so few politicians are willing to stand up for the family because of the benefits that come from it. I remember going down to South Africa. I met with Nelson Mandela and his cabinet, and they were having a horrific time with HIV transmission. This mm-hmm. was back in the 90s. And uh, they gave us $2.5 million because they had tested every seventh grader and asked them if they were sexually active and only 20% said they were sexually active in seventh grade by eighth grade, 80% were sexually active. So they asked us to come in and do an abstinence program to encourage seventh and eighth graders to wait until marriage to have sex. And it was very successful. It helped reduce HIV transmission in that age group. And we did that for two or three years. And I remember the cabinet, Mandela's cabinet, they said, you know, if you're here to help us strengthen our families, we'll help you because we believe the family is the basic building block of the culture. 
And I was like, man, can you get on the phone to DC and help them understand that? And I have no idea why there's such a war against moms and dads and kids and even having children that somehow children are bad. Yeah. It, it's just, it's so countered to our human instincts, our God-given instincts. And somehow I think we're going to have to change this direction or we're going to be suffering mightily. Well, let's take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, talking with Jim Daly of Focus on the Family. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we're back at Lighthouse Faith Podcast talking with Jim Daly, the um, president of um, Focus on the Family. And we're talking about the family. We're talking about DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills player that collapsed on the field um, of cardiac arrest. He's now out of the hospital and hopefully he will make a incredibly full recovery. But there's the backstory to DeMar Hamlin that his his upbringing was, you know, not perfect, uh, teen Mother, teen father, um, father went to jail for drug um, drug use and um, or selling, I guess. And then, uh, but but he stuck by the family and you know produced this incredibly gifted NFL football player. Um, Jim, I just think we're talking about the family, and you know, Maya, I I think we've talked about this before. My oldest brother, even though you know they were raised, he was raised two parent household. My my parents were young when they got married. My mother was 17 when she got married and mm-hmm. had her first child when she was 18. So my brother was born when he when she was, I think, 20. Uh, she, he was the second child. But, you know, he got in trouble. He was in jail for a little bit and came out. But now he 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 um, he ended up getting a doctorate in education. He was pardoned by the governor. He was wow. the head of the state parole board. Uh, wow. Just uh, an incredible story. He was actually offered a position in the Carter administration um, years ago, which, you know, he's much older than me. I want to tell you that right now. Um, <laughs> but um, but it's just the idea that because the parents are there and that's what hmm. his parole officer said when he was, you know, that young kid in trouble. His parole officer said, I knew he could make it because I knew he had an intact family that was going to stay by him. And it wasn't his mother and father, it was aunts, uncles, cousins. All of that structure was there um, to help him get back on track. Um, That's, from your point of view, how important is that when you've got that family structure so you can get back on track? Well, it's critically helpful. I mean, again, I think for all the reasons you've identified, I mean, when you have people you can lean into, when you have a problem, you can talk, to them. Uh, People can give you wisdom, even if you're not asking for it. And I I think to your point and what we talked about earlier, it's not complicated. We have to simplify it. It's just as simple as being there, like in DeMar's case with his dad, even though he had time in prison, but came out and stayed intact with the family and didn't leave the family. That same application is there for everybody else that's suffering with broken families. And, uh, you know, I've said it over and over, the data is so 
rife that if you're in that intact family situation, whether it's extended family, et cetera, you're in a much better position. You're going to most likely graduate high school. You're most likely going to be going to college. And if you go, you're most likely going to graduate when you have an intact family. And and so all of it just starts building for like your brother's experience mm -hmm. from difficulty at a young life into incredible opportunities when you move in a better direction. And I, you know, I, I just think if we could work together as a society more so than fight on these issues and recognize the importance of the family and get behind it. I used to, to mention down in Australia, for example, when you're going to divorce and there's children in the home under 18, they have a six month cooling off period mm -hmm. with mandatory counseling because wow. they know the breakup of that family is going to have consequences that really spill over onto the government. Oh, and uh, when you start looking at the cost of the breakup of the family, I think the Georgia Family Institute did a research project uh, some years ago. They estimated that the federal government is spending over a hundred billion dollars every year. Wow. Just to compensate for in, for the lack of intact families through food stamps, jails, all the things that come with a with a broken family. I mean, those those men that are incarcerated, uh, you know, so many of them, such a high percentage come from a broken family. I remember the story of the greeting card company yep. that did a Mother's Day outing and they gave they gave every inmate a Mother's Day card to fill out. They had to go back to the factory, get more cases for this prison. And they thought, oh, well, let's do it for Father's Day. Not one card was requested. Wow. And what it that's it. I mean, not one card. The prisoners wow. don't know their dad. They don't like their dad if they know their dad. And there's no connection with their dad. And it's self-evident they're in prison in part because I think they had no relationship with a healthy father. Wow. Wow. This um, idea that so many young men grow up without fathers, how does that affect their ability to believe in a, in a heavenly father to believe in wow, a father yeah. of you know the god of the bible because so many of the attributes i i, I assigned to god is because i mm -hmm. had a loving father who was so unconditionally love loving um no matter mm. what i did I, I i can't imagine not having a father like this and then having my same same attitude about god the father well, I think you're spot on. I mean, when you look at that comparison, I think for me, life is be the older I get, the simpler life becomes. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is you see these illustrations, these metaphors that I believe God has put in place, whether it's marriage. You know, what's the goal of marriage? It's so funny. I interview top experts on marriage. And when you get down to it, it's about becoming selfless. I mean, yeah. successful marriages is, happen when you lay your life down for your spouse. Right. And that comes in a lot of different forms. But when you are selfless in your marriage, you're going to have amazing benefits. And I think that's the Lord saying, hey, listen, I'm going to set this institution up. I'm actually going to have opposite types of people attract to each other, introvert, extrovert, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and, and through that, you're going to learn how to become more like me, which is selfless. It's that simple. Yeah. And you're going, wow, could it be? And then parenting the same thing. You want to control your child? 
Well, just wait to the teen years when control doesn't work anymore and you got to let go. And uh, that's the formula. You've got to allow them to spread their wings, to make their mistakes, not to be perfect kids, not to be good, perfect Christian kids. I mean, that's another problem the church has. So in my mind, when you look at all the life and you talk about the breakup of family, et cetera, we should be doing everything we can as a culture. I don't care what political bent you have, et cetera, mm-hmm. we would be a far stronger culture if we invested more in maintaining and helping the intact family. But you so know that what? They don't There's a touchy better. subject that I have to bring up now because, of course, this is one of these, this is kind of the elephant in the room when you're talking about strong families. And of course, you know, I think focus on the family is on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of uh, hate groups, because uh, <laughs> I know you you must, I think you are. Um, but it's it's the idea that, um, you know, uh, they insist that, you know, two men or two women and their children can make a happy family or can make an intact family. What is focus on the family's position on that? Well, I think, you know, our position has always been we believe in the biblical definition of marriage, that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. And you have to admit that up until about seven years ago, that was kind (laughs) of what everybody thought for millennia. So, you know, shame on us that we're kind of sticking with the old recipe when others are saying we need to move into the 21st century and try new things. We just believe it's self-evident what God intended in his creation with male and female. And it doesn't mean we're hard hearted toward those who have same sex attraction or transgender issues. We get all that. We know it exists. Um, The other thing for me, as we are becoming more and more a secular nation, we don't control anybody. I mean, all we can say is we believe this is best and you disagree with us. And for that, we're deemed a hate group. And that that's what's unfortunate, but it's kind of the tip of the spear of shame and, you know, trying to control people's thought process, no dissent, move in one direction. And if you don't, they're going to label you somehow. So, you know, again, I think for us, this change is happening so rapidly. We believe in a biblical definition of marriage. We think it's one man, one woman is the best way to go. It's what Jesus described when he says, a man shall leave his husband and wife and cle- or husband and a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And, you know, so we just believe that's the recipe. That's the formula God has given us. I have compassion for people that have same sex attraction, everything else. And, you know, I don't live in that space. I've got my own problems. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't like scripture says when you look at a woman and have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If we're in the editing business, let's go ahead and take care of that as well and wipe that one out. And I think, Lauren, the other thing too is, um, you know, in a self-centered culture, which I think we live in today, yeah, it's obvious that what culture wants to do is bend the Bible toward my whims and not, not read those things that convict me. And that's not what the Christian life's about. The Christian life is about conforming to the scripture and living a life that God can be pleased with. And that's, you know, that's really rough to hear because in this day and age, we don't want to hear that. I don't want to bend to anything, you know, but that's, that's how it works, folks. And, you know, my life is like that. I mean, I had horrific things going on in my life as a 
kid living. I lived with my brother in high school. I remember Friday night playing football. I'd say, what time you want me to come home? And he'd say, three, four in the morning. That oh, should be my fine. Gosh. And I remember walking out of the house going, I'll try to stay out that late. <laughs> I mean, that's the environment I was in in high school. So I have my share of, of downside behavior. But boy, when I at 22, when I really embraced the Christian life, I thought, OK, this is a far better way to go. There's so much peace in my life mm. since I became a Christian. And that's because the chaos of the world, I don't live there anymore. And I feel bad for people that choose the chaos of the world. It's not a good place to live. One of the things that, that I would like to know, do, have, has folks in the family done any um, studies about, um, and I suppose long-term studies, and it would be, you, it would almost be impossible at this stage of the game, when you have a same-sex couple and they have children, um, even though the child might be biologically related to one of the parents, one of the one of the people, one of the people in the couple in the in in the marriage, um, they are separated from one biological parent, right? Like, yeah, you're deprived of either a mother or a father. Right, exactly. You, you, so, have, has folks in the family done any kind of studies? That show what the effects of that are, that the purpose that the, the relationship basically is defined, um, you know, by saying, you know, our children will have no, it will, will be, they'll be separated from one biological parent. That's the purpose of a relationship. Yeah. Have they done any studies yeah, or I, do you know, know of any studies? There are studies out there that we've been following, and we've not commissioned a study because if we commission the study, who's going to listen to it? <laughs> it's kind of the so, but we do look at metadata. We're looking at studies that are out there, whether it's from University of Texas or Brad Wilcox at University of Virginia. And, and you can begin to see the picture. I mean, again, everything we've talked about, the social science that points to when a father isn't in the home, what happens to the children? That's true, even in a same sex relationship with kids, when two uh, women are in that relationship, you're still missing the influence of a father. And, you know, again, politically, it's uncomfortable to, to talk about that. You're almost uh, put in, uh, you know, the quiet place if you raise these questions. But I remember interviewing a young man who had a mom and dad, and they both ended up divorcing, and they both went with same-sex couples. And here he is. He's a 16-year-old boy at that time going, okay, what do I do? And he ended up living with his two moms. And he was very respectful. And he said, you know, we still struggle about that. I, I was deprived of a father. My dad didn't really remain in my life that strongly. But he said it was so interesting when I came out to them. And I said, what What do you mean you came out to them? And he said, well, you know, when I was 16, 17, I had to tell my, my gay moms that I was straight. <laughs> and I went, what? And he went through the description of that. He goes, yeah. I sat him down. I said, mom, mom, I need to tell you I'm straight. And they said, we thought we raised you better than that. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, this could be a discussion in a Christian home, right? When the <laughs> son comes out and he's gay and the parents are saying, we thought we raised you better than that. But isn't that amazing? And, uh, you know, I just think, again, I have I, I have friends that are teachers in school, public schools, et cetera, and they have students that live with uh, two moms, for example, and just about every person I've talked to, not to generalize, but especially in elementary school, they see in that child the behavior. They're very um, shy about that. They won't talk about it or they, they'll over talk about their dad mm -hmm. and they're not living with a dad. So even even in a first, second, third grader, 
there's this yearning that I wish I had a father. And rather than use these kids as political ploys or tools, I mean, I really, I really think as a nation, we need to, to shore up what's best for children. And that's probably a great place to elaborate there a little bit, Lauren, because there seems to be such a war on children. Why don't we yeah. start with what is best for children and then work backward from that rather than what is best for us as adults to express our sexuality or our desires and then, you know, make the children conform to that. Wouldn't that be a refreshing culture? To yeah, say, okay. I think there are a lot of uh, uh, delayed um Growths. I mean, I think arrested development, which was the phrase I'm looking for. There are a lot of adults who are still children. They are. They won't Absolutely. grow up. They don't, have not had to grow up. Um, Mary Eberstadt, I think, was uh, she wrote a um, book called Primal Fear. I think Primal Scream mm-hmm. or something like that about this sort of delayed development. This this need for the father has stunted the emotional growth of a lot of young people, but also the sexual revolution where you don't, where you, you can have sex with anybody. You've separated love from sex, uh, which was a part of, you know, what held marriages together, that it was oh. so intertwined. And now yeah, you've the separated the two. So now families are breaking apart, but they don't understand, you know, why am I, why am I so upset? Why, why can't I find the right person? Why can't I be why can't I? What I'm not married. Why? Why is not the fantasy guy that, or the fantasy woman that I've dreamed of? Why? Why can't I find that person? And it's, it's really quite complicated. But on the other hand, it's really quite simple. You know, it is family of origin things. And you know, if a person doesn't understand that, that's, you know, the kind of household you grew up in. What triggers did you develop when people say something like you're having another bag of potato chips? Why you go off on that person? <laughs> but you know, there's there's things that we learn in, as children in in our families of origin, and we take those into adulthood. And when you break a family apart, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I, 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 my heart broke. I got a letter from a 33 year old woman who said when I was seven years old, my mother and father were getting a divorce and my dad took me out to breakfast and said, listen, honey, it won't be that bad. Your mom and I still care about each other. We just can't be married. And, you know, we're going to see each other two weeks out of the summer. I'll get you every other weekend. That was the last conversation she ever had with her dad. Oh, my goodness. He didn't even keep up with that commitment. So that breakfast that he had when she was seven, that's what he communicated. Then he didn't fulfill that. And she was in her early 30s writing Focus on the Family, a letter saying, my heart is broken. And it was all back to her dad. And it ended up she was in horrible relationships with abusive men, just yearning and yelling for love. Will you just love me? And she couldn't find it. And it was breaking her heart. Thankfully, she became a Christian and reordered her identity in Christ. And that's what saved her life, in my opinion. So, you know, yeah, it's profound. It's deep. And we're so busy. We don't we never stop and really think about what hurts me. What is going on in my heart that makes me unhealthy? Well, Jim Daly um, had a focus on the family. Thank you so much um, for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I could talk to you quite a bit about the idea of family. And we're going to talk again because I think there's some issues concerning the family that we can continue to talk about, can continue to be out there. I think there are a lot of people, like you say, are hurting. Um, Mm. You can bring some more of those stories to us and so that we can show people that they're not alone. Right. And I so appreciate it. Lauren, you do a fantastic job. I, like I said, uh, my wife just thinks the world of you. I do too. So thank you for all you're doing there at Fox to raise faith up as an important aspect of our human 
walk. Well, thank you so much. And to God alone be glory, I'll tell you. That's the bottom line. Amen. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.